Amen. Praise the God, Lord, somebody. Put your hands together for the Lord. Amen. Ten years. Amen. Holy, holy, holy is he. Holy is the king. I want to thank God for my brother Royce Robinson, an elder of marriage and family life at our church, Crossover Bible Fellowship. Uh, Royce and I have served together since 2004 in ministry, and I praise God for his ministry to couples and singles and to our uh, married and family life ministry across uh, all of Houston has been impacted. He's trained up an amazing team of ministers to minister to couples and families. I thank God for him traveling with us to get a chance to see Epiphany for the very first time and also the opportunity to bless you in song and to participate with you. Amen. And I want to take a little brief moment to uh, celebrate my good brother. And I want you all at this inauguration celebration of your 10-year anniversary to celebrate and praise God for the obedience of your pastor and his wife, Pastor Eric Mason and his wife, Yvette. Amen. Amen. 10 years, lives have been saved, marriages have been made, churches have been planted, Africa has been impacted because of the obedience of your pastor, but that could not happen without the great elders of your church that serve alongside of them. So one more time, put your hands together. It is right to put your hands together for your elders. Thank God for the leadership that God has given you. Thank God for the spotlight on Pastor Nyron. It is appropriate to give honor to the people that have served well and have been a part of your development and your growth and we want to thank God for all that you've done. An amazing staff that is always taking care of me and my wife and family and friends when we travel up to Philadelphia. So this doesn't happen without the collaboration of a lot of people who love the Lord Jesus Christ and serve him for his glory. So we want to thank God for that. Amen. Yesterday, uh, while on the plane traveling to Philadelphia, we got a chance to meet a great sister, and she's here tonight. We invited her out. Come on, stand and wave to the people. Amen. She's down here, um, down here on a uh, oil and gas conference, and we got a chance to talk on the plane, and she said, what are y'all up to? We said, well, I said, he sings. He's the famous guy. I just preach, and, and so uh, she came to hear Roy sing and worship with y'all. Amen. And so we praise God. We praise God for our sister in the Lord. Amen. And uh, we praise God for her coming out. Great seeing you. And uh, I just want to take a time tonight for us to turn our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 17. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 17. On this inauguration night and celebration of your 10-year anniversary, I think it's appropriate to, for us to turn our attention to a pastoral epistle to get some wisdom from the Apostle Paul and that which he shared with young Timothy as it relates to ministry. First Timothy chapter 1, if y'all don't mind, I'm going to go old school, if y'all will stand. Now, remember last time I was here, I don't want y'all to read. I know y'all read with Pastor. Let me read all by myself. I'm going to give y'all a break. This is y'all's anniversary. Amen. I'm going to give y'all a break. Y'all already read earlier. And so this is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 17, as I'm reading from the New American Standard Version of the Bible. The Apostle Paul writes these words in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 17. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, 
but for those who are lawless and rebellious, the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and for immoral men, and for homosexuals and kidnappers, and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. And yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and the love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be holy and acceptable in your sight, for you are my rock and my redeemer. Father, we need to hear from you now, clearly, God, as you encourage your people in the word of God. Thank you for the great foundation of Epiphany Fellowship that is built on the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, in the place of men's sins, his burial, and his resurrection from the dead, Father God. And it is through the proclamation of that gospel Father God, that you have seen 10 solid years of ministry. But Father God, many more are to come. So tonight, revive us in your word and revive us in the gospel. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen and thank God. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 17. Tonight, I'd like to tag this text, the glorious gospel. The glorious gospel. As we travel through the book of 1 Timothy, this pastoral epistle, as we spend time in it tonight and you attach your attention to these nine verses, I want to share with you that right in the middle of this book, 1 Timothy, that Paul writes to his young protege in the ministry, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through 15, the apostle Paul tells you why he's writing this book. Oftentimes when you are reading biblical books, there are not points of clarity where the pastor, or excuse me, the author tells you exactly why he's writing. But the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, tells Timothy, Timothy, I'm writing you this book so that in case I am delayed in coming to you, that men and women might know how to conduct themselves in the household of the living God, which is the pillar and the support of the truth. In other words, the book of Timothy is a code of conduct book for the church, how the church should conduct itself how the church should handle its business. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes and tells them in verses 1 through 7 how all men, male and female, ought to be praying for the salvation of non-believers. And then in verses 8, 9, he tells you about how men, he now moves to man, from mankind to men in specific, that we ought to be lifting our hands and lifting up our hands in prayer without wrath and dissension, united together as brothers and sisters, lifting our hands. 
And then in verses 9 through 15, he tells you how women ought to conduct themselves inside the church of the living God. He says that women ought to be women who pursue good works. Women ought to make sure that they are women who have godly living and godly lifestyle and that their clothing ought not be distractive in the gathering of those that worship together. It's an interesting statement because it's actually an upgrade for women in the culture. A lot of people look at the way Tim and Paul handles women and they say, Paul was a chauvinist, that's a total lie. Because if you remember the city, Ephesus, where Paul is teaching young Timothy, is there was a temple there where there was a woman, a goddess, the goddess Artemis or Diana. She was known as the many-breasted one or the goddess of fertility. She was a promotion of the sexual sensuality of women, where Paul was saying, no, don't just be viewed as sexual, sensual objects, but be viewed as spiritual women who make a claim to godliness, and you, you are now seen as women of great and good works. That's 1 Timothy chapter 2. Then he goes from chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. He says, this is how elders ought to conduct themselves in the way that they live. And he walks through the lifestyle of elders and how elders ought to conduct themselves. Then he moves from 8 through 13 in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and says, now deacons ought to conduct themselves like this in the church. He transitions into chapter 4 and says, hey, there are going to be some false teachers with false gospel, and you ought to be able to handle them like this. And Timothy, now as a young minister, handle your life like this and make sure that no one looks down on your youthfulness and pursue the faith properly. He moves into chapter 5 and says old men ought to be treated like this in the church and older women ought to be treated like that in the church. Then he moves on and says how widows ought to be treated in the church. And he goes on and he talks about how elders ought to be treated in the church. Moves on and says how Christian employees ought to be treated in the church and then how rich people ought to handle their business in the church. He walks through that all of the book and he just sections out how people ought to conduct themselves in the church. That's how he handles the book. But that's not where he starts. Where he starts the book is chapter 1. And when he starts the book in chapter 1, what Paul wants Timothy to know is this, is that the goal of our instruction is love. He said the reason why we teach the Word of God is because we love God and we love the people of God. It's not only love, but we have a sincere faith and a good conscience. Paul is saying that the motivation behind our ministry, the reason why we do what we do is because we have a great love for God himself. He says, but among that, he says there are also some false teachers that have crept into the body. And these false teachers are teaching the law, and they're bringing up these little arguments inside the body of Christ that bring division. And he says, and yet these teachers do not know what they're talking about, and yet they're making confident assertions. He said, in other words, that if you were to really listen to these teachers, although they're false teachers, you would think that they knew what they're talking about by the way they say it. And then you find yourself in verse 8. And check out verse 8. Verse 8 starts out with this word, but. It is a conjunction. In other words, it is connecting the previous sentence to what he's about to say. And what he's saying is this, is that I just told you about the false teachers, Timothy, but in light of that, you have an assignment to make sure that sound doctrine is taught in this church. He says, but all sound doctrine starts with a proper understanding of the gospel and how the gospel of Jesus Christ is to affect the lives of gruesome people. Oh, yeah, that's good news right there. In other words, the church is not a social club for nice, erudite, good folk. The church is a house of salvation, of redeemed sinners, where folk can come up in here uh, and be blood-bought by the Lamb, purchased by His blood, and be saved, because the worst ought to know that God's best was performed at the cross. 
And so he says in verse 8, he says, but we know, as he's talked about previously, that the law was being used falsely. He says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are, uh, 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 but for those who are lawless and rebellious, and for the ungodly and the sinners and the unholy and the profane, uh, for those who kill fathers and mothers, murderers and moral men, uh, watch this now, homosexuals and kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which we have been entrusted. Notice this. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, I want to get that very first slide. My very first slide. My first point is this. Tonight, the law of God is not designed to regulate the saved, but to reveal the glorious gospel to the unsaved. Write this down. The law of God is not designed to regulate the saved, but to reveal the glorious gospel to the unsaved. Now, this is important because what Paul is really talking about is this, is that there were some people in the early church, Pharisees, who had been saved, who were once legalists, but yet the gospel had saved them. And what they had begun to teach as Paul was preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, where Peter was the uh, apostle to the Jews. Now, Paul, taking the gospel to the Gentiles, he says that there were some Pharisees who had believed who were teaching the people of God, unless you observe the law of Moses, you must not be saved. You cannot be saved. Then he says from there, he says, unless we circumcise them and they observe the law of Moses, they cannot be saved. There were some Jewish brothers simply saying that the Gentiles can't be saved like us. We're saved by grace through faith, but these nasty, filthy, wretched dog Gentiles, these uncircumcised pork eaten shrimp eating, no good for nothing, Gentiles, they can't be saved like us. Y'all didn't, y'all didn't get nervous when I said pork and, pork and, and shrimp. That's because y'all Gentiles. That's why y'all didn't, y'all didn't understand what the problem was. And so they tell them, hey, we want them to observe the law of Moses, and we want them to be circumcised. And there's a big conversation in Acts chapter 15, and the apostles and the elders of the church conclude simply this, is that all men, are saved by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. That's how men are saved. And so as a result, Paul says, the gospel is not to be used to regulate the lives of the saved, false teachers checking on you, trying to determine whether or not, if you really got it. But what the gospel of Jesus Christ is really designed is to reveal the need of the unsaved. Now now watch this. So here it is. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 ought to bother you a little bit. It says, but we know that the law is uh, good if one uses it lawfully. In other words, how do you properly use the law? Now, notice this. He says, it's not made for a righteous person. The law is not designed to be used to regulate the life of a believer. Galatians chapter 5 will tell you clearly in verse 18 that the law is not for a righteous person. You're already saved. You now have a free love relationship with Christ by which you can freely walk in the spirit of the living God. So don't use the law, Timothy, on people that are already saved to regulate them. What you do is use the law accurately. Now, when you use the law of God accurately, what it is designed to do is to point out the holiness of God and the unholiness of man, the gloriousness of God and the ungloriousness of mankind. Now watch this. And as a result, men would ultimately see their need for the gospel and for a savior by the name of Jesus. So he says something like this. Look at it here in the verse. He says, 
it's made for the lawless. Now, the lawless are people who refuse to recognize the law. We, we don't believe that. The rebellious are people who live contrary to the law. He says, this is who it's made for. He says, the ungodly, those who uh, don't want to regard God, uh, the sinners, those who live in opposition to God, the unholy, people who live impure lives, and the profane, people who take the things of God casually. Watch this. He says, that's who it's written for, but now that's categorized. Let me get down into, into some specific people that live this way. Now, we'll look at this verse right here. He says in verse uh, number, number nine, he says, for those who kill father and mothers and for murderers. The law can help those who would kill their father and mother and murderers. Now y'all, can I just be honest with you real quick? I hope y'all don't mind. I'm from the South and black folk don't do that. See like, you know, being disobedient to your mom and dad, like that's one thing, all right? Now I'm just being cultural and South with y'all right now. Y'all, when I read that, I'd be like, there's no need for that to be in the Bible. Because my mom and dad taught us, boy, if you, and we, yes, yes, yes ma'am. My mom and dad didn't believe in timeout. They believed in a belt, amen. That, that's what my mom and dad believed in. So I don't even understand how the Holy Spirit would write that the law is designed for those that would kill fathers and mothers. To point someone who would do something like that to Jesus. Do you realize how glorious the gospel must be that God would allow a man who had killed father and mother and yet come with the fact that I've killed my son on your behalf and allow you to be saved and be in the family? That's the glorious gospel. See, you gotta find out if you're going to be revived in a gospel that saves all mankind. So watch this, as a result, recently in Houston, about three months ago, it was over the summer, there was a killing in Houston. A young man who had played in the NFL, graduated from Texas A&M University, played for the New York Jets and for another team, and his son, going to a very wealthy private school in Houston, shot and killed his father and his mother, and now has a lawyer working on his behalf to say that he didn't do it, but it was someone else who came in the house. Now, when I read the article, y'all, can I be honest and cultural one more time, I said, this got to be somebody white. Why? Black folk don't do stuff like that. We, and then I read, I said, it's a brother? Oh, Lord. A young black man had killed his father and mother and then got a lawyer to represent him to say, watch this, we don't, I didn't do it. But do you realize that the glorious gospel can still reach that young man if the court rules against him and it's proven that, yeah, you did it, while sitting in a prison, a minister can go in that prison cell and the gospel can go forward and reach a man who not only killed his mom and dad, but lied about it in his legal courtroom case. That's the gospel. Watch this, he says, but it not only will it kill, not only will the gospel save those who uh, kill father and mother, but watch this, it, it, it'll save murderers and immoral men and homosexuals. Now, now I'm gonna move away from all the rough stuff to the pleasurable stuff. He says the gospel will save immoral folk. Now that word immoral in the Greek language is the word pornoneia, where we get our word pornography from. It means all forms of illicit sex outside of the marriage covenant. Anything that you've done where you could say, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, but yet you, you did something. You did something. You, you did something. Watch this now. The gospel can go and reach 
the sexually immoral people of our culture today. And so that when you're in the church of the living God, you ought to be sitting next to some folk that have some past that yet God has saved them. You ought to be sitting next to some Rahabs and you ought to be sitting next to some woman at the well. You ought to be sitting next to some Davids and Samson, somebody that was way out there, but yet the gospel saved them. The immoral, the gospel can reach them. Now, 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 we like the immoral, but the homosexual, that's, that, that's a little different. See, because we want to have a hard stand against the homosexual. We, we, you know, the church got to stand up. We can't stand for this. Well, I want you to turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 real quick. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I want you to understand what the church ought to be doing. See, when God allows the church to carry the gospel, the church ought to have all kind of folk in it. Amen. Check out this 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. The Apostle Paul writes and he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, here it is, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, that's describing all of us right now, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now check out this verse. Such were, past tense, some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. In other words, in the Corinthian church, there were some folks that you wouldn't know that you want to be sitting next to. See, when you have a gospel-preaching church, the gospel's going to draw people from all kinds of backgrounds and bring them into the family of God, and then we can work with them on all the other stuff, but the gospel ought to draw somebody. Walk back with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And so he says, it'll reach immoral persons, homosexuals, kidnappers, and liars, and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which I have been entrusted. Now watch this. Paul is going to say, I've been entrusted with a glorious gospel. That when I think about the gospel, I've just categorized in your mind, young Timothy, the type of people that are going to be reached by the church. How should the church conduct itself? It ought to be preaching a gospel that reaches people from all type of sinful backgrounds to where those people of sinful backgrounds get pulled into the church of the living God. And the reason why Paul was concerned about the legalistic teachers is because the legalistic teachers were trying to regulate lifestyle while not yet concerned about the Lord. And how the Lord frees men to live righteously. Now Paul, dealing in the text right here, check out verse 12. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful and he put me in the service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now watch this. Here's the next point. Paul received and recognized God's overwhelming predestined affection and plan of action through the glorious gospel. I'm going to repeat myself. Paul received and recognized God's overwhelming predestined affection and plan of action through the glorious gospel. In this verse, Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Now when Paul begins to thank God, this is the only place really where he thanks Christ like this in all of the Bible. He says, I thank God, I, I thank God, Christ, for his amazing favor towards my life. 
I thank Jesus Christ for the fact that he looked at me and his favor fell on me and he graced me with salvation. He said, I want to thank Christ for saving me. In other words, if Paul is going to write to Timothy about how the church ought to conduct himself, Paul starts with how the gospel affected me. See, see, as, as we form churches and we begin to minister to others, the first thing that the preacher and the elders and the leaders must remember, and any member must remember, is that the gospel saved me. And Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Now watch this, because he strengthened me. Now this word strengthened means that he enabled Paul with his power. In other words, he shared his power with Paul to accomplish the work of God. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because he strengthened me. In other words, God will not call you to do ministry in your power. God will call you to do ministry where he collaborates with you through his power. My, my, my daughter and I, she was getting ready to go to first grade at Northland Christian School down in Houston. And so the day before she had gone to school, we went down to the zoo. And there was a paddle boat, and my daughter's uh, feet could barely reach the paddles. So we were in there together. And you know, Mom, she volunteered me in Houston heat summer, about 108 degrees. She volunteered me to ride in the paddle boat with my daughter while she took pictures. I'm sweating hot. It's all, and my daughter's feet can barely reach the paddles. And she, she said, Daddy, I want to do it by myself. I want to do it by myself. So I said, okay, Reagan. And she, I, I said, look straight ahead. And so Reagan was doing it, and Reagan was starting to get frustrated because Reagan's feet could barely touch the paddles, and we weren't going anywhere. And all of a sudden, on the side, I said, Reagan, look straight ahead, baby. Just make sure you look straight ahead. And with my feet, I started working on them paddle boats, and Reagan started smiling, and the frown went from a frown to a smile. And Reagan never knew that the whole time, Daddy was pushing that thing all by my feet. Reagan thought she was doing something, but I was strengthening Reagan and everything she did. And what God is simply saying to you and I is you might be thinking that you're at work, but it's God in Malawi. It's God in Epiphany, Brooklyn. It's God in Epiphany, LA. It's God in, in restoration. It's God. God is strengthening all that you do. He is working alongside you doing all that you do. And Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord because he strengthened me. I recognize that this power did not come from me, but it came from God himself. Now, watch this. He says, because he considered me faithful and put me in the service. Now, this, this blows my mind. This word consider ought to get you. He says, he considered me faithful. It literally means that the priority of God's thought when he thought about Paul before the foundation of the world, listen to me, a, 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 an, a, an omniscient God who knows all things who can't learn anything, knew everything about a man named Saul of Tarsus before he ever became Saul of Tarsus. But, but before Tarsus had been created, he knew everything about him, and yet he knew all of his sins. And what Paul is getting ready to say is, I was a violent aggressor against the church. I was a persecutor of the church. I was a blasphemer of the church. I was trying to shut the church down. And yet God, knowing everything about me in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, looked at my life and considered me. And that means the priority of his thoughts about me was that I see a future for him, yet I know everything about his past. God looks at Paul's life and the priority thought in God's mind is, Paul, I have a ministry for you. With all your filth and with all your mess, Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because he considered me faithful and he put me in the service. 
He put me into the service of ministry, God knowing everything about me. See, here's the good reason and the good news about those who serve the Lord. Is those who serve the Lord, what gives us the energy to serve the Lord faithfully is that we know us. And we know there's no way I should be holding the mic right now. I don't want anybody from my elementary school to come up here and tell y'all nothing about me. I don't need anybody from my middle school to talk to you, high school or college, much less some other. I, I, I don't, but, but God, anyhow, considered Blake faithful and put Blake into the ministry anyhow. And what's blowing Paul's mind, the reason why Paul is revived is because I look at Christ and I see what he's done for me. He says, here I was, formerly a blasphemer. Now, notice this, is that God thought about Paul before the foundation, in Galatians chapter one, Paul tells the Galatians 13 through 16, write it down. He says, you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church and tried to shut the church down. He said, I was more extremely zealous about my ancestral traditions, passing everybody else in Judaism. And yet, when God, who knew me and called me, even in my mother's womb, God knew that I would be right there at the stoning of Stephen. God knew that I would be authorizing it, the stoning of Stephen. God knew that I would get letters to go shut the church down. God knew that I would be taking votes in Acts chapter 26, verse 18, 9 through 18, voting against the people who were getting killed, saying, go ahead and kill them, and yet God still saved me. And God still put me in ministry. So here's the good news, y'all. Wherever you are in life, don't ever think you're so bad that God can't pick you up and use you. Don't ever think that your history is so jacked up that God won't use all of your mess for the glorious gospel. Watch this. So he says, plain and simple, he says, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor of the church. Now, here's the thing. The next point is Paul reminds and revives himself and Timothy, realizing that the law required his death but the glorious gospel removed his guilt. Now, Paul's going to say something. Paul says he's a blasphemer, but that doesn't mean anything to you because many of us who are saved don't really realize the consequences of us breaking the law. See, what happened is, is that Paul, being a Pharisee, knows the law real well. So Paul knows what are the consequences of me being a blasphemer. So if you don't mind, walk with me to Leviticus chapter 24, verse 15 through 16. I know y'all been using it for your devotionals. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 15 through 16. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 15 through 16. Let me show you what Paul knows about himself. When Paul tells you, I have received the grace of God and the mercy of God on my life, this is why. Because Paul knows what the punishment or the penalty was for his sin. The reason why many Christians don't live joyous lives is we got that in general mentality about, you know, all sin leads to death. Watch this. Here's what Paul knew, Leviticus 24, 15 through 16. He says, you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, if anyone curses his God, then he will bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death, and all the congregation shall certainly stone him. What Paul recognizes is that while I was blaspheming the church of God, I had a death sentence on my life, but yet God paused it for the gospel to get to me in Acts chapter 9. 
y'all, y'all, Paul recognizes and realizes that as a blasphemer, I should have been stoned to death. Y'all, y'all, let me bring it home real quick. What is it, what is it that Paul did to Stephen when we first see him come in the Bible? He authorized, y'all haven't caught it yet, the stoning of Stephen. He authorized the stoning of Stephen. And yet the sentence on his life, the penalty for being a blasphemer, is that he should have been stoned. He stoned a man who was preaching the gospel while he was hating on the gospel, and then God would save him and allow the punishment not to befall on him, and yet the grace of God would set him free. And then not only set him free, but call him in the ministry. Y'all watch this. Paul reminds and revives himself in Timothy, realizing that the law required his death, but the glorious gospel removed his guilt. So back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, notice what Paul says, and we're done. What Paul says is this. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, verse 12, who has strengthened me because he has considered me faithful, putting me in the service. Even though we, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy. I did not get what I deserved. Why? Because I acted ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Oh, watch this. He says, here was the grace of God. Now watch this. In John chapter 1, the Bible says that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The Bible goes on to say that, uh, that, that we have all received from him grace upon grace. It means grace stacked up on grace. Y'all, my wife and I were dating in our early days, and the very first time we went on a date, uh, she ordered a salad. And when she ordered this salad, my wife said, um, I'd like the dressing on the side. Now, y'all know I'm just a brother and all that kind of jazz, so I'm just, y'all bring it out the way it's supposed to be brought out, all right? Now, so, so I asked my wife, I asked my wife, I said, she was my girlfriend, then I said, I said, Renique, why did you want the salad dressing on the side? I'm trying to get it, you know, she's a PhD, I'm trying to get it, you know, in, in intellectualized myself, right? get a little bit more sophisticated. And she said, well, Blake, I'd like to control the portions of the salad dressing that goes on the salad. You want to control the portions. I said, okay. Now I'm looking at mine, no portion control, anything. It's all, it's all. But here's what God says, is that she said, I wanted to divvy it out on the lettuce and on the tomatoes and on the cucumbers how the salad dressing was. I wanted to control the portions. But he said, grace upon grace. In other words, when God looks at grace, he does not allow you to control the portions. When God looks at your life, if he were to view it as a salad, he would cover it so much that you didn't see any lettuce, any kale, any spinach, any cucumbers, any tomatoes, any olives. He would cover that thing with so much grace. And Paul said, abundant grace fell over my life. Not only did I receive mercy, but I received the abundant grace of God. And I just want to encourage y'all in the room right now as y'all look at another 10 years. That as you look at another 10 years, you got to first of all look back and reflect on some stuff. See, what Paul did to revive himself in Timothy right here is he looked back and reflected. And when he reminded himself of how God had saved him, he said, you know what, Timothy? After I've talked about homosexuals, after I've talked about kidnappers, after I've talked about murderers, after I've talked about uh, those who kill father and mother, after I've talked about all that, I've only concluded one thing, that when I talk 
talk about them, let me apply it to myself. And he said, I am, I was the chief of sinners. And if God could save somebody like me, he sure can save a whole lot more folk. And so I want to leave you elders with this word right here, that you ought to revive yourself and reflect yourself and how God has already saved you, what he's already done for you. And think about what you would be doing if it not been for the abundant grace and mercy of God that fell fresh on your life. So Paul says, it's removed my guilt. He said, I was the chief of sinners. And if God could save me, he could save anybody else. Epiphany, as you travel along for the next 10 to 15 to 20 years, remember this one thing. If God can save me, he can save anybody else. As you walk around Temple and Drexel and all these places in Philadelphia and you look at the sickness of what's going on, remember this. There is a glorious gospel and God was so patient in saving me. If he could save me, he can get somebody else. And then all of a sudden, Paul said, well, I might as well close it like this. Paul says, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Watch this. Here's what Paul did real quick. Paul said, let, me, let, let my salvation reflect, lead me to pause and praise God for who he is. What Paul recognized is as he reflected on his salvation and what God had done, he said, hold up, let me stop here and praise God. And he said, now unto him, to the king eternal, to the king immortal, to the king invisible, to the only sovereign, to the only wise God. Paul said, right now, let me stop right here and praise God for all these. When I look back over my life and I see that he considered me faithful and put me in the ministry, I want to bless the Lord right here. So as you continue, reflect on what he's done. Revive yourself in his ways and remind yourself that we've got a wonderful God to praise. And as a result, you want to carry a glorious gospel into the future generations. Why? Because if he can save your pastor, save your elders, then he can save anybody. What Paul is saying is I might be the apostle to the Gentiles, but when I look back over my life, regardless of anything that's on my resume now, I remember I was the chief of sinners. And if God could save me, there's so many more out there that can be saved. So I want to pray for you that more and more salvation, more and more baptisms come. Why? Because the elders and the leaders of this church reflect on the fact that God saved you and you're totally blown away. Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. Let us pray. Father God, right now in the name of Jesus, Father, we come to you and we ask God that you would speak, Father God, fresh in our hearts. Lord, allow us to realize that, God, oh, how much grace, how much grace upon grace, how much mercy. And yet, Father God, when we categorize other people's sins and we categorize them like that, if we don't reflect and remember where we were, Father God, we might stop preaching a glorious gospel. Paul said you overcome legalism by reminding yourself of the fact that you got saved. Father, I encourage this church, God, this ministry, to continue on in gospel ministry, reflecting on all that you've done for them. Thank you for putting these men and these women into the service of your kingdom and consider them faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and thank God. Let's give God a hand praise.